Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Griggs, and I'm the host of the Regina Sounds podcast. And alongside me today is Will Harris from White Oak Pastures. Thank you, Will, for joining. Thank you for having me. Appreciate appreciate the opportunity. So to get started, uh, so I know you have a book that just came out, A Bold Return to Giving a Damn. And I read it, and it was incredible. And there's one certain passage that I really wanted to to share because I've reread it time and time again. And I think it's a great way to start this. So as I took more and more control of operations at the farm, the returns on my investment were good. I couldn't complain. I had a nice house and a good pickup and took my kids on vacation every year. What I failed to understand, however, was that the technologies of reductionist science had an ugly underbelly. For each industrial tool I used, there was always a consequence, one that without fail was bad, always unintended and always unnoticed until tomorrow or next week or next year or even next decade. I failed to see the unnatural grain I fed the animals, chucked in from industrialized monocultural farms, required substantial amounts of petrochemicals to cultivate and transport, using up non-renewable resources, and also created painful acidosis in the animals, unnecessarily causing suffering. I didn't yet see that those ear tags didn't work so well the next year, forcing me to buy more, more of them, and then less well the next, and then the flies started eating my ass up and the cattle's asses after that. They annihilated all the strongest, all but the strongest flies, who'd bred and become super resistant to the chemical, which no longer worked. Nor did I realize that the antibiotics we regularly put into the feed at low levels to help with the acidosis bloat, as well as respiratory problems, were helping antibiotic-resistant bugs to find their way into the environment. Nor did I see the ammonium nitrate fertilizer I applied to my pastures quickly oxidize the organic matter that gave the soil its biological force, and the pesticides stripped it of its microbial life. This reduced the soil's ability to hold water, changing it from absorbent sponge to hard tabletop, which in turn changed the temperature of the air, contributing to a broken water cycle that played out in extreme weather events. I did not see that nitrogen reduces from the residues from the fertilizer escape during large rain events into my streams and then into rivers and even ultimately to the Gulf of Mexico, contributing to the algae blooms and waterways in the Gulf that kill aquatic life. I wasn't acknowledging that shunting cattle away from where they were raised and into centralized meatpacking facilities over a thousand miles away was depriving my local economy of historic agricultural jobs and that towns like Bluffton and Blakely were losing their life force as a result. And though it shames me to shames me a little to admit it, I don't think I was even noticing how many species of animals that were my companions as a child, from crawdads at the gator pond I fished at, to toady frogs in the ditches we played in, were now missing, no longer able to, to survive in the biome that was saturated with life-killing chemicals. When I first saw them coming back some years into managing my land for the better, I was not only astonished to see them, but also astonished that I hadn't noticed their absence. And that that last piece of that is just so powerful because it made me realize too, <clears throat> I did not, I was not in agriculture at all my whole life. I was so disconnected. I didn't visit a farm or ranch until last year. And it actually took really bad family health events to really wake me up. And just reading that, you've been in this your whole life and it was just really fascinating the fact that it just seemed, I'm trying to get my words straight here, that even for you, it, it's just crazy how human nature works. Whenever out of sight, out of mind, because I went to the grocery stores 
and always fully expected food to be there. And uh, it just took some crazy events to finally came to this realization of I'm so disconnected from food, the very well thing that keeps us alive and sustains us and how we advance as a, a species. So my question was with that in terms of the conventional side of agriculture and making these huge transformational shifts for yourself and your farm. And with the rise of regenerative agriculture, especially in the past year, have you noticed the same um, realization from other farmers and the conventional side of things to where from their upbringing versus now, it's just vastly different because of the practices that have been implemented? <clears throat> Sadly, uh, I don't think it's caught on. I don't think this kind of uh, agriculture is caught on the way I believed that it would. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, one is what, what you stated. You know, I was so committed to industrial commodity agriculture that I didn't, I couldn't see another way. And, and you know, and I, I was that way because that it's the way my father was. He's the one that industrialized this farm starting post-World War II. It was what I had learned at the University of Georgia College of Agriculture. It was what all of my contemporary uh, friends in agriculture believed. Uh, I didn't know anybody that believed any differently at the time. So it, it, it was just... Uh, uh, very much like a, like a commandment to me. It was the way things work, and I was fine with it. And I actually enjoyed it for the first 20 years I did it, <clears throat> probably probably because I was an, an, an overuser. Uh, I, I did become aware of the unintended consequences of those tools that I was using, and, and it really made me want to pull away from them, and I did, and it, and it was not easy to do. Today, uh, there are not as many of us in this kind of agriculture as I believe there would be. You know, I thought when I started doing it that, well, at some point since I started doing it, I thought that this was really going to get traction and take hold and be how we produce food in this country. But it's proven to be more difficult than I thought uh, economically and otherwise. Just a lot of reasons why it's hard. And there are some of us, not many, that are old industrial farmers that embrace this new way. Gabe Brown would be another example. There are others around the country. Most of the people in this kinder, gentler agriculture are young people more like you that had never had much exposure to agriculture until they came to it. But it's no matter who you are, it's very difficult. It's uh, it's hard to uh, grow food without the tools that technology provides uh, and absorb all those costs and convey it successfully convey it in, in, to the, to a consumer in, in terms of a profitable sale. It's just you know, we're, we're doing it and it's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm glad I started 25 years ago. I think if I were starting today, it would be even harder. I know it would. Why do you say that? <clears throat> well, it's mostly because 25 years ago when I started producing grass-fed beef, nobody was producing grass-fed beef much. So I got to define it, and we offered it to Publix and Whole Foods, and there was a growing 
awareness that that was a thing you know, among consumers. So they bought it from us and it was profitable for us. And we did well for a decade or so. But the uh, uh, there was a, a change in the rule in uh, 2015, I think. And the, uh, they allowed uh, uh, grass-fed beef to be imported into this country, but labeled product of the USA. Uh, if if uh, value was added here, it became a product of the USA, even though the animal was born and raised and slaughtered in up to 20 other countries, New Zealand, Uruguay, Australia, a number of other countries. And that really, apparently, production costs are very, very low in those countries. And so that has uh, severely impugned the growth of grass-fed beef in this. In fact, it's, I don't know what the number is, but most of the grass-fed beef in this country is not of this country. It's not born, raised, and slaughtered here. So I also noticed, too, um, I've seen many articles this year just on the topic of just the beef cow herd it's lowest it's been since 1962 in America. I'm assuming that would be a, a major, or I guess what would be some reasons behind why that has happened, considering our population in America is much higher, obviously, than 1962. I think, I think there's some similarities. <clears throat> the beef herd has always ebbed and flowed and ebbed and flowed, roughly 10-year cycle, maybe a little less than that now. <clears throat> so that the the fact that the uh, herd is down is is actually uh, easy to understand, and, and you could pretty much budget it. Uh, I do think <clears throat> that we are increasingly exporting beef, the beef industry, <clears throat> as we have so many other industries. Uh, <clears throat> land is cheap in other countries. Uh, uh, Labor is cheap. Uh, probably the restrictions are less uh, less enforcement. So it, you know, it we're we've exported you know, so many of our industries, and I think we're probably exporting agriculture now at a, at a slower rate, which I think is still occurring. Hmm. So you bring up a lot of good points with <clears throat> exporting, and also just the topic of starting a grass-fed operation, for example, right now is more difficult than when you started. I One of the reasons why I have Regenesance and have this podcast is to really reconnect us back to folks such as yourself and talking to just anyone in agriculture to really paint this full picture. Because what I'm really worried about is the fact that by 2030, we're, half of America's farmland is changing hands and most don't have an heir. Hardly anyone wants to go into agriculture with the advancement of technology. Um, it's You could just get a cushy virtual assistant job that could pay the same, if not more, than doing hard labor out in the field every single day. I know, for example, that you're doing all this amazing education. Uh, I mean, you're just on multiple podcasts. You're on this podcast. You have this book. Uh, there's conferences and whatnot. How could we I guess, try to incentivize or get more of the younger generations interested in this lifestyle because I'm just worried it becomes more centralized than it already is, especially in these next 10 to 15 years. That's a broad question. The, uh, 
And ultimately, ultimately, that question will be decided by the consumer. The consumer will decide if food can be profitably produced in a proper manner in this country. And, they, and they'll decide by choosing to, to, to buy it. The, you know, the, the way we farm, uh, the way we've industrialized, commoditized, centralized agriculture, that situation is not going to be improved by our politicians. There's simply way too much money in agriculture in the hands of large multinational food companies, technology companies. So they're, 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 you know, they, that, all that money goes to those, uh, uh, to the bureaucrats, slush in different, different ways. You know, you know as much about that as I do. So we won't see legislative change that's beneficial. Uh, we won't see change from land-grant universities. Uh, they get too much money from the industry. Uh, I can go on and on about who's not going to help in this situation, but the, the, fa the fact is nobody's going to positively impact it except consumers. And consumers either will choose to buy food from people like me, not just me, but people like me, and pay more for it to cover the externalized costs, or they'll choose to buy uh, cheaper corporate food. And, and I'm less optimistic than I have been about how that I, the, the outcome of that. I, I don't know. You know, I don't have that, uh, that future vision, but I do know that whatever happens will be in the hands of the consumer. No, that's a, yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Um, it's, that's why I'm trying to be as optimistic as possible after the last couple of years of my family stuff, because what I've gone through is becoming sadly more and more common in America. Um, I mean, 75% of this country is overweight, obese, severely obese. Um, again, going back to how disconnected we are from our food. I think that is a really critical component because for me, for example, whenever I was visiting ranches and farms last year, the very first one I visited had beef that was directly from their ranch, had produce that was directly from their garden. I had never had anything like that. I had just always eaten from the grocery stores. And that first bite of beef that I had was a life-changing meal because it's the most connected I've ever felt to my food and the natural environment. And I think with a lot of folks, if they were able to experience that, it really gets the wheel spinning in their head, really thinking about where the food comes from. And then just going down the rabbit hole of the actual food that they're eating for their health. And then that can also just add to the long-term thinking, because again, with the cheap food, you're not really thinking long-term about the implications of, of that decision at all. And until it might be too late for, for like it was for my, my family. And so, yeah, that's, it's a huge challenge. And that's why I have this, podcast as well is so it's just one way to see if it could help kind of throwing a dart at the dartboard with with the big with all of the big players that are going on you know we sell about 25 million dollars worth of product a year and that is uh it's big for a farm but it's small for a food company and we don't want to grow our business it's, it's as big as i want it to be it's bigger than i intended for it to be we 
made certain changes like build a, a poultry slaughter plant and build a red meat slaughter plant. We had to achieve a certain amount of volume to make all that work. And we've done that, and we don't want to be any bigger. <clears throat> but what I don't want to do is ship food to 48 states, which is what I'm currently doing. Uh, what I really want, and I appreciate the business from people from California and Washington and Maine. I appreciate their business. I mean, in uh, deep South Georgia, almost to Florida, almost to Alabama. That's where I'm located. Uh, I want to sell my product more locally than I, I currently sell it. But I have to sell it all over the country because I've got to sell $25 million worth of product so I can uh, run my business. That's what it's geared to do. And I I didn't want it to be that big. But when I built the plants, a certain size was almost necessary economically to make it work. You know, what I hope is that there'll be, a, what I had hoped and continued to hope is, there'll be a lot of white oak pastures springing up all over the country, not not owned by me, with individual local ownership, wherever they are. That's the way I think the, the food business should be, not this huge centralized uh, industry that, that has come to be. So as you were talking about that, it reminded me also in the book when you were talking about as you're expanding using the, the, the Tifton facility and working with Publix and Whole Foods, how you were teetering on the edge of losing it all. And I was hoping that you could just explain that instance and, and why you were so close, even though you can, were continuing to expand your, your, your farm. Because um, I know for a lot of folks don't really understand how fragile this industry can be for you folks. Yeah, so 25 years ago, uh, I was running this family farm. I'm the fourth generation of my family to operate it. My children were small, uh, and uh, and we were profitable every year. We paid I paid taxes every single year. It was not a a super profitable business, but it was a very consistently profitable business, and we lived comfortably. I had three or four employees, and it was fine. Uh, I made the decision to move uh, out of the industrial commodity market into the grass-fed business. And I was using outside uh, slaughter capacity in Tifton, Georgia, you mentioned. Great, great people. Great people over there, about 100 miles away. And we'd haul cattle over there. But they simply could not, they didn't have the capacity to slaughter enough cattle to make my business work. When I maxed out their facility, I still wasn't selling enough stuff to, to, to make my product work, enough beef to make my system profitable. So we made the decision to build our own USDA-inspected slaughter plants, and that was painful. And it was the first time I'd incurred debt. I had been blessed to inherit a paid-for farm. And uh, we borrowed, uh, I think I initially borrowed $2.8 million to build the plant. And we had to go back and get some more Ultimately, we got it going, and we weren't able. Then we weren't able to sell enough product to make the plant work. Uh, Whole Foods, which was a very different Whole Foods from the one today, but Whole Foods sprang to my rescue along with Publix, and uh, grass-fed beef was a very new thing back then. This is the early two thousands, 
And they, uh, they bought all I could produce at a level that was allowed me to be profitable. So we had some very good years. Uh, we, in fact, we sold Whole Foods and Publix the first pound of American grass-fed beef that they marketed as American grass-fed beef. So the timing was just very, very fortunate on, on my part. Uh, as time went on and the, uh, the imported beef uh, became increasingly available to retailers, uh, our profit margins suffered dramatically. I had to compete price-wise with the imported product. And the, it really sucked the profit out of my business. We, we, uh, we're recovering from that now, but it's not nearly as good as it has, as it was back in the early 2000s before the imported beef could be labeled product of the USA. And you mentioned how Whole Foods back then was different for today. From the consumer side standpoint, I noticed dramatical shifts to, from your side of things, what were the challenges as they were changing that you've been facing? You know, I went from knowing just about everybody in executive management to knowing almost no one in executive management. And they uh, bought less and less and less from me and wanted to buy it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And, and most of this is post Amazon. That's when, that's when the changes really started occurring. And I'm not saying they're, I'm not saying they're bad people, but I'm saying they're very corporate with, with the same uh, views and desires that other corporate, you know, multinational companies have, and and I'm, I'm not saying that's an evil thing, but it's it's not the way I it's not the way I want the world to be. I wanted to transition a little bit to actually just growing up on the farm. Yeah, I was just curious just to hear about your experience growing up. I had a wonderful childhood. I wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, it was. Uh, a very uh, southern, even though I grew up post-World War II, it was very non-industrial uh, uh, way of life. Uh, my dad was a, had become a monocultural cattle producer, which is a, a hallmark of being uh, uh, the more modern, non-multi-faceted uh, operation. But the, the lifestyle was still very rural, and I, I was, uh, you know, they raised pretty feral, uh, hunting, fishing, frog gigging, uh, whatever was going on at the time. I had a lot of, uh, my, my father's workers lived on the farm and had big families, so there was a lot of kids, and uh, we played hard, and uh, just really, really great memories. And by the time I became an adult and had children, it had changed a lot. I, I had three daughters, and I uh, didn't really know what to do with girls, and they were raised um, in a very good way little girls were raised in the 1980s. It was softball, basketball, piano lessons, voice lessons, dot, 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 whatever, whatever was going on. And, uh, and I never thought they would come back here and farm, and I'm pretty sure they would not have had I continued the very industrial monocultural cattle business that I had, my dad had created and that I ran and really enjoyed and profited from. Growing up, did you think you were always going to want to take over at, at a certain time to, for the farm? There was never a doubt in my mind. I mean, I, I never wanted to do anything but farm. 
and I, and that was not encouraged by my by my father. He thought that uh, uh, people who had good, relatively high paying jobs in town had it made, and uh, and I, that was pretty that was pretty typical of farmers of his generation. And he thought that I should uh, should go to town and get a job. And when I graduated from high school. He really uh, insisted I go to, to college, and I did, And but I majored in science. You know, I, I still just want to come back home and farm. And, I, and that's, that's what I did, and uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad I did it. Because that's just what I – one of the many aspects I love about agriculture is, is just the family history side of things with each individual place. Um, the oldest farm in America, I think it's now called Tinder Crop Farm, but it was the Tuttle Farm that started in the 1620s and they stayed in the family for, I think 300 almost 50 years, like 348 years. And then they finally sold in 2010. And I know you were mentioning how you didn't think had you not switched away from industrialized that your kids wouldn't come back. I was guess if you could just talk a little bit more on that because keeping it, I guess the, that goes back to, as I was saying with the challenge of exchanging hands and a lot don't have an air I'm the fourth generation to own this farm. My daughters in their thirties or the fifth, uh, yeah, fifth. And they've got children between the two of them. They've got five children who are the six. They're still small. And my, my daughters are, I'm sure committed to, to run this farm for the next 30 years. They're in their thirties. And, and that is very, very beneficial because it allows us to make decisions generationally. I think that one of the things that's happened that's, that's really terrible is how, I mean, I understand why it is the way it is, but I think there's a lot of downside to the fact that businesses today are driven by the quarterly report, monthly report, annual report, and, and decisions are made based on uh, maximizing return and profitability in those very short windows of time. We make decisions here every day that are 30 year decisions. We, we talk about it and, you know, I'm 69 years old. You know, I, I'm often, I'm the one that, that brings that part of a decision we're making to the, to the board. That's my uh, two daughters, my two, their, their spouses and a couple of non-family members that, are, that, that, that sit on the board. And I was, Tell them what the opportunity is and what I think about it. And, but I always say, but now this is a 30-year decision, and I won't be here in 30 years. So you need to decide what you want to do about it. Hmm. And they, they make a rational choice. And sometimes we do it, whatever it is. Sometimes we don't do it. But you don't get that opportunity in a stock company or, or you know, whether, whether it's uh, – you know, people and ownership is in and out, and the window of consideration is much, much shorter. And I think that's a problem. I think that, uh, and I don't know what to do about the problem, but you know, I think that the, the old European style of leaving the estate to the eldest son was, was very wrong in that it was the eldest son. It should have been the most capable and qualified person. But leaving it to the uh, involved parties that are in it for the long haul. 
I think that was wise, very, very wise. So with that, and then as you're continuing to expand, you've also mentioned in the book, you were for just all of the different types of specializations that you would need. So for example, when you had opening the, the processing facility, having folks for that, uh, I forgot the name, but you had people training, people would be coming in. How would you ensure, again, as you've continued to expand to keep, I guess, just the culture of, of the farm getting stronger? And then I know you're mentioning with the a 30 year decision, because that I really like that because it makes you feel more involved and your voice is more heard of just the individual. Are there any other things that you've done to just ensure that that culture is just really strong? Because again, with agriculture, that the community on the farm is so important. It really is. And, and, and calling it a culture is absolutely fine. That is what it is. And I was just changed dramatically, you know, from my, my great grandfather, my grandfather, my father and me for the first 20 years, we were the only decision maker on the farm. We had employees, but uh, they were doers, and the only decision maker was the, the, the Harris that was in charge. And it worked well. I mean, we paid for a thousand acres of land, and, and, and you know, it, it, went, it was fine. Uh, but when I started changing, uh, and when I started making changes, that, that was not a target for me to change. I mean, that's not something I specifically wanted to do differently. But as the operation became increasingly complex with all these other, not just a production in the pasture anymore, there was processing, there was marketing, there was distribution, there was accounting, there was HR. We've got 170 or so employees and, uh, you know, I, I simply couldn't run it all myself, didn't want to run it all myself, whereas previously I had been the only decision maker here. So uh, giving other people authority and, and making them decision makers and allowing them to have uh, the uh, autonomy and flexibility to do things uh, came, e came easier for me than it seems to come to a lot of people. I, I didn't I didn't mind doing that. And while I've had a few disappointments along the way, it says the, the net impact has been very, very positive. You know, a lot of people have done a brilliant job. <clears throat> but it, as the operation became more complex, it gave more uh, openings and opportunities for my daughters and other family members to come back in. Today we've got, uh, this, this company is run by Southern of Us, uh, five are family members, two are not. Supervise about 20 managers. They supervise the other 140, whatever employees that are, that are left. And uh, I think it, you know, it's, uh, some days I think it's run very, very well. Some days I don't think we do too good. But overall, it's uh, an organization I think will last another generation or maybe two. That's what we're looking for. And that's just such a stark contrast. I come from a tech background and used to work for IBM. So it's obviously one of the largest companies in the world. I just did not, I, I became really demotivated with how A, slow it, it was working. And then B, we would do the work and show results. And it didn't matter if the executives had already made their decisions for whatever 
thing that they already had in mind. And then it's just like all that work you did, it didn't really matter in the end. It destroys the, the, the team culture for sure, because it's just, why are we doing this work if it doesn't even matter at, at the end? And so that's, that's what I love about that is it's more, you feel like a team player. Well, I hope our employees feel that way. It's certainly the way I view it, and I hope they view it similarly. So I wanted to transition a little bit to, um, I'm a former vegan. I was vegan for two and a half years. Uh, to, to me, it was two and a half years too long. But you had a really great point in, in the book as well, that their view of the entire animal kingdom is filtered through the lens of companion, companion animal relationships and it's funny, I'd never really thought about that. And then actually on Thanksgiving Day, I saw PETA, their Twitter account. They tweeted a just AI generated photo of Elon Musk hugging a turkey and saying is just just the better. It's essentially, the, this is the better world that we should be living in. And I was just hoping you could just talk about your experiences, because then you talked about just the relationships you have with the nature surrounding you is different than the relationships you have with your animals, which is different than the relationships you have with your employees and then with your family and i thought that was just a great point because again that completely changed my perception of that as well you know i consider myself to be a very simple person and i'm and i'm fine with that doesn't, doesn't bother me a bit and i and i when i started uh marketing my product and going to whole food stores and meeting the ultimate customer that was buying my grass-fed beef uh i was aware of how much more complex they view things in general than me but shocked by how much more complex i view the animal kingdom as compared to them they it was it took me a long time to get over it i, you know, I would go and meet really nice people they would have a chef there cooking my food and they would taste it and they'd say oh it is so good that's great i'm so glad you're doing this i'm so glad this is available for, for us but I, I got to say, I just don't understand how you can see a little baby calf born and raise it for two years and then kill it and eat it. I just don't. I, I'm glad you do, but I just don't I just don't understand how you do that. And it, it shocked me when I first heard that. And I heard it a number of times. And I really had to think about where is the disconnect? Because... This thing you're describing as being so onerous doesn't bother me a bit. I mean, eating my beef that I raise is a, one of the pleasures of life for me. And I finally figured it out is that I am far more com complex than they are when it comes to the animal kingdom. You know, those people, you know, smart people, successful business people, doctors, lawyers, Indian chiefs, view of the world, the animal world, is their pet, their dog or cat or parakeet or whatever pet they have. And that's their view of the animal world. And mine is so much more complex than that. You know, I have, I got a pet too. I got a bulldog. He's laying right over there. His name is Judge. And I love him as much as those ladies love those poodles and things I, I have the same feeling and th but then I got livestock cows and hogs and sheep and goats and poultry and I love them too but in a different way than the way I love judge 
And I've got working animals like horses and guardian dogs and herding dogs. I love them in a different way. And I can go on and on and on of all the loves for various citizens of the animal kingdom I have. That's a big part of my life. And the food animals, uh, I, I look forward to the slaughter and, and consumption. It's like I look forward to having a litter of puppies out of my uh, companion animal. So, you know, it's, uh, <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I want, it's, it's, a, it's a, the food animals are a, 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 a river, not a lake. You don't just get it and own it and it's flowing through. And I want to, I want to slaughter this calf crop because I got another calf crop coming. And it's just, I, I now understand that uh, consumers, many consumers don't understand that. But I had to really figure it out. So with that too, uh, with the huge climate change agenda too, um, with the consumers not understanding, whenever people would say that animal agriculture is causing climate change and then specifically grass-fed and finished, it's more intensive than with with grain because you're out in pastures longer. I guess how... What would you say with that too, with the fact that not only is it from their perspective that it's causing animal suffering and that you shouldn't be eating that, but also that what you're doing is negatively impacting the environment? Well, you know, I have a, uh, a scientific study called an LCA, Life Cycle Assessment, on our website, whiteoakpasture.com. And it literally shows that my cattle operation sequesters far more carbon than it emits. In fact, in fact, we draw down two and a half pounds of carbon for every pound of beef that we market. It's in less, black and white. Now, you know, critics have said, oh, well, the figures are wrong. It's really not two and a half. It's only one and a half. Okay. It's a pound and a half. The fact is, our beef cattle operation, grass-fed beef operation, is carbon negative. It, it and I don't see how thinking people can even start to deny it. Look at the the herds of buffalo and bison in the Great Plains pre-Columbian. Look at uh, oh, the Serengeti Plain and the tundra and all these great grasslands that have animal impact has sequestered thousands of tons of carbon. You look further back than that. Look at the the uh, enormous storage of, of uh, carbon, uh, oil, and gas, and coal from the era of the dinosaurs. You know, uh, animals in their natural environment sequester carbon. Now, to be sure, beef fed in a feedlot or pigs in a feedlot or chickens in a chicken house <clears throat> are, emit carbon, I, admittedly. <clears throat> but I believe that uh, this narrative has been created by anti-meat people that that don't want uh, good animal production to be considered good ecology. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's right. And I have called them out on it and I've never gotten a, uh, a satisfactory answer. They, they, 
you know, people have agendas, and I, I don't want to say who's behind what, but if I were starting a uh, uh, vegetable-based meat company, you know, I probably would throw off on the ecological impact of uh, meat, meat, animal meat production. I mean, I, it makes sense to me, and they've done it very, very well. <clears throat> you know, the cycles of nature is the carbon cycle. That's what we're talking about here. And it's important, but no more important than the water cycle, no more important than the mineral cycle, no more important than the microbial cycle, no more important than, and we can go down the list, there are just a lot of natural cycles that are, are supposed to allow to operate unimpeded for us to have a healthy ecology. And monocultural production of food has interrupted that. And industrial food production is monocultural. So it's, you know, it's all bad, but what we're talking about these days is carbon, 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 because I think that fits the narrative of the people that want to sell plant-based protein. You brought up a a lot of great points. The first thing that came to mind too, I think you mentioned in the book, um, was the impossible meats too, and how they actually admit, admit more than what, your operation does. And I just find that hilarious. But then you also brought up the good point of going back to uh, your view of just the animal kingdom is way more complex. The thing that I just noticed is majority of people just have a black and white view of everything. There's no nuance at all. Um, And then especially with this, and I also just find it funny because a lot of those folks have never stepped foot on a ranch or farm. They've never worked on one. They really don't actually talk to you guys. Um, but then paired with all the other things that actually cause more damage to our environment that aren't nearly as necessary as food, because again, that's the thing that sustains us and how we advance as a civilization. Because when you think of a cruise ship, for example, you're only going for like a five day vacation and this gigantic boat that has to be way more detrimental to our environment than what you're doing. <laughs> And I just, I find that hilarious because they just try to pick apart certain things and then use social media. And as you're saying, catchy phrases to really catch your eye and make you think that meat is really bad for you with other articles like meat causes cancer, red meat causes cancer, colon cancer. Um, It's just kind of asinine to where that's where we're at right now, but um, that's again, why I'm glad that you and so many other folks are doing the work. And then you have it on your website showcasing that what you're doing is working and it continues to work. I think it's where the planet evolved. It's got, it's how it got to be such a beautiful blue and green and white fessel that, that we were sailing around the sun on. It's just part of these, these natural systems that have evolved. And suddenly we've got a better idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there's a couple of questions. I, I, uh, I asked just the folks on social media that follow this account, if there's any questions that they would want to ask. And one asked just from the, on the topic of ecology, are you planting any trees in the pasture to make more shade for cattle and create more Savannah style pasture? And have you experimented with, tree hay crops such as white mulberry or 
um, moring moringa trees. I have not uh, tried the, the hay trees. I'm aware of that, but I have not done it. We do plant a lot of trees. We don't plant enough. Uh, planting trees is not incredibly expensive. Protecting them from the animals is incredibly expensive. You know, it's, uh, we're protecting them from the cattle rubbing on them and the hogs rooting on them and, and whatever happens out there is expensive. So we have to limit how many we, we plant. And I would like to plant a lot more, but we do plant trees every winter, as many as we can afford to plant. When you have when you're having those conversations too, and going back to um, the example of when you're talking to folks and um, just the decision you're making could, is the 30 year decision. How are you planning just with the trees and other things that you want to include in your farm? How do you strategize and game plan around that, especially because with planting trees in the winter? then you have to make sure that you really take good care of that because it's a, you have to be patient with all that. And it's not something that will just grow overnight. Yeah. So we, you know, plant trees is important to me. It's not as important as surviving economically in the short term. That's I got to do that. So I can only plant so many and we, we usually set aside a little budget of what we can afford to do. And it's, it's fairly whimsical. You know, so I plant a lot of white oak trees. That's the name of the farm. And there aren't a lot of white oaks around anymore for, for several reasons. Uh, we plant green ash. We plant pecans. We plant some pines, not too many. There's a lot of plant pines here. Uh, but protect, the cost of planting the tree is not, it's almost insignificant. The, the cost is protecting them from the animals. And that's, that's, that's hard to do. Uh, we uh, I'll have a, se a separate deal. It's uh, an, an orchard. And we plant uh, anything anybody suggests, whether it's supposed to grow in this temperature zone or not. We plant it. And, uh, and if it lives, we take cuttings and plant some more. If it doesn't, doesn't. It's fruit, nuts, all kind of different things. And it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Uh, we... These, you know, when you plant trees, that's a, that's a generational investment. You know, you, you won't get anything out of it. You're doing it for the next generation. And, you know, my dad, granddad didn't plant trees. They, they, they cleaned up trees. And, and I did for the first 30 years, 20 years. But now we're uh, planting trees and, and wish we could afford to plant more. What are some of the biggest changes that you've noticed just today compared to say when you were 10 years old on the farm? <clears throat> I love the term teeming with life. That's, that's a beautiful term. And our farm is teeming with life. There's just a lot of stuff growing here. And I mean, from the, the microbes in the soil, I, I, I can't reach it from here, but I've got some soil from my land versus an adjoining property. And it looks like it came from two different planets. One's a dead mineral medium. And the other one is is just teeming with life, and that and that's a, a function of how the the land is handled, not tilling it, not using chemical fertilizer, not using pesticides, and having a lot of animal impact, turning vegetation into manure to feed the microbes. Uh, so that that's uh, 
you know, there are a lot of trees planted. It's all in grass except for our garden. We got about a two point, about a three acre garden that, that, and we, we, uh, they still cultivate some in the garden. And I don't like it, but I don't, I don't know enough about gardening to, to tell them how to do it differently, but they do it judiciously and they don't use chemical fertilizers or pesticides. Uh, you know, a lot of species of plants and animals and I'm sure microbes are here that, that weren't here. I can remember seeing the, my first toad. I, you know, we used to play with them as kids and I, they were gone. I forgot about them. And now we have toads everywhere. Well, we've got uh, bald eagles are here. They're, they're almost a problem. They are a problem. Uh, uh, so many species of plants and animals. I see. I see plant species. I don't know what they are. You know, I've, I've been I've been in these pastures for sixty nine years. And I see something. I don't know what that is. And you know, sometimes it's a non native that's shown up from somewhere, but sometimes it's a, a native that has just sunk into the seed bank and has resurfaced. With the bald eagles, how are you able to con- bet them because as one of america's animals i know that you you have to be uh conscious of how to go about that right well you just don't mess with bald eagles i mean there, there are two or three laws that are uh, specific to them as a national uh, national bird we, we, we're raising a lot less pasture poultry than we used to we couldn't we couldn't make money on it not just because of the eagles but other reasons but we uh, we had a brilliant poultry production manager that figured it out. And uh, what he did is he took our guardian dogs and fenced them in with the birds. You know, the the guardian dogs are nocturnal. And they would stay with the our, our chickens, ducks, skinnies, whatever it was, uh, all night to, to guard them and protect them because that's instinctively what they do. But in the, in the morning, at daylight, they'd go to the woods and go to sleep. And that, sadly, that's when the eagles work, is during the daytime. So the eagles would have their way with my poultry all day. So my brilliant <clears throat> poultry guy fenced the dogs in so they couldn't go to the woods. And they could still sleep, but they had to sleep up there with the, the chickens, turkeys, geese, guineas, ducks. And, uh, and it went a long way towards uh, we still have eagles we still have eagle death loss to our poultry but it's very manageable you know i, I don't mind the eagles uh, having something to eat i mean that's 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 like tithing to nature that's that's, that's you know that's part of what we do but they would kill wantonly they would kill dozens and dozens and dozens and not consume them just just kill them you know, that, that that's what we had to stop but we did get it stopped. This is why I love regenerative agriculture and aligning directly with nature because just reading your story, hearing your story and you talking about it, how the industrialized farming with the monocropping, the tillage, all of the, the petrochemicals and how anti-nature that is. And then nature responds to where it destroys the soil, you get worse quality food, it destroys the land, the dust bowl happens, you have not nearly as nutrient dense animals, so they're unhealthy themselves, and then that's unhealthy for us. But on the flip side, 
as you were starting to transition and as you were steering away from uh, monocropping and all of the petrochemicals, then nature responded. You're having healthier and healthier soil. You nature is coming back and you're having animals that you hadn't seen since you were a child. And I just think that's a beautiful thing. And it just shows what happens whenever you connect with nature and work work with it rather than against it because it always it always responds back with how you treat it probably the only thing i learned in physics in college i don't want to take physics but uh is that nature abhors a vacuum i remember i remember that being said thinking it's pretty cool but it didn't mean much to me but when i got back to the farm and started making my living i realized that nature abhors a monoculture nature doesn't want a monoculture Nature will fight that monoculture. But that's what industrial agricultural production is. You raise corn in the cornfield and nothing else. You raise wheat in the wheat field, cotton in the cotton field. You raise chickens in the chicken house. You raise hogs in the hog house. You raise cattle in the feedlot monoculturally. And nature abhors that. Nature doesn't want it. Nature wants a lot of different species of animals and plants and microbes living in symbiotic relationships with each other. I don't believe you can think of a single uh, environment on the planet that's a monoculture that's naturally occurring. All of them are symbiotic relationships of multiple species. But when we embrace the factory farming model, when my dad's generation embraced the factory farming model and my generation kept it up, we embraced the monoculture. And when we embrace the monoculture, we put ourselves in a position where we're going to fight nature every day, every single day. And we, we got good at it. And I thought I was great at it with uh, cattle monoculture. I knew exactly what herbicide to put out to kill a plant I didn't like. If it wasn't monocultural Tifton 85 Bermuda grass, which is what I wanted, I knew exactly what uh, fungicide to put out. If it was a microbe attacking my Tifton 85 Bermuda grass, I knew exactly what insecticide to put if the insects were on my cat. And, you know, the, the side, you know, side means kill. Mm-hmm. And every day I went to my pastures and looked for something to kill and found it most days. And the unintended consequence of that was I, it made me need another side to kill something else. And another one, another one, another one. And for the uh, industrial multinational pesticide companies, that was exactly what they needed. They need a bunch of Will Harris's out here putting out their product, which necessitated using another product and another product and another product. So that's that's how this monocultural food production system that we have evolved. And I think it evolved badly, especially for the planet. Not, not so much the multinational companies, but for the ecology of the planet. And it's Sadly, though, it's hard to get out of it. It's hard to uh, move away from that for a lot, a lot of different reasons, most of which are economic. You brought up really good points, too, on what came to my mind is just the phrasing and and just terminology. When you were just going out there, again, with all the sides to kill, but then going back to your college days, 
whenever you first started, it was animal husbandry. And by the time you graduated, it turned to animal science. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, that's, that's right. And I guess it needed to be animal science for a number of reasons. Um, but it makes it more uh, replicable. You know, if you, uh, husbandry is, in my mind, I don't, I don't know what the definition is, but in my mind, it's very ecologically uh, influenced. You know, if you, if, you are, if you are a great student of husbandry in the mountains or the coastal plain or the desert, or you may not be that same expert in everything, but if you're a scientist, it's good anywhere. And, you know, when if you look at uh, college professors, where they've been, most of them have taught at a number of different institutions all over the country, all over the world. And that, you know, that fits well. When, you, when you're that, that vertically, uh, in that vertical model, uh, you can transfer that knowledge from place to place to place very easily. The, the big shifts from your generation with mine is the internet and just how quickly travel and the ease of travel is now. And that's drastically changed the culture, um, especially with most generations now, they just want to travel a lot. And now working remote, for example, is such a big thing. Always wanting to be on the go, 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 visiting this place, moving to that place. You have, you were born on, on the farm and have essentially been there your whole life. And uh, yeah, I guess how, because you, you're so passionate and you, like you're saying as a kid, that's all you've wanted to do. How are you able to just be on, on that land the whole time, considering just how different a lot of people's thinking are? And I know more and more people are starting to f- be unfulfilled with the work they're doing, whether it be in large cities or um, just wanting to get away from the, the, the noise and, and the busyness. Well, I, if I understand it, <clears throat> my, I do have a very strong sense of place. You know, I'm, I'm really happy here, and I'm really uh, have a great understanding of the ecosystem here and how things work here. I have done a lot of traveling. I've been all over the world, uh, but I only want to farm here. And when I visit other places, I learn things. Mm-hmm. But I, I was always interested in how I could apply it here. And when I go to other places, uh, I just got back from uh, Montana uh, this week, and I, I just I was just very painfully aware of how little I know about those ecosystems in that in that high elevation, low rainfall, low humidity. And how lost I would be trying to, you know, raising cattle is what I'm best at. But I, I, I wouldn't be very good at it there. <clears throat> but I, I have a great understanding of this ecosystem here and the plants and the animals and the meteorology, all the way down to the microbes in the soil. <clears throat> and I think that's what, uh, I think that's what we miss when we've turned this into such a very, linear equation as opposed to a very cyclical equation with that then on just the topic of, of cattle ranching the the final question i had this is also from the audience how should young aspiring ranchers get in the game knowing how capital intensive acquiring land in tw- is in 2023 
Well, the fact is, if you're a young person that wants to farm and you don't have uh, much or any money, you can't just go in this business. You can't do that. There's a, there's a barrier. And, and it, you know, I think that's probably true in the restaurant business or in the automobile business or in the, you can't just, uh, as a young person with no assets, start a business. Not, 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 not as capital intensive as this is particularly. So I think that uh, what's got to happen is uh, two, two things. From an educational perspective, <clears throat> they need to go to work uh, as near in, in the ecosystem that they plan to operate in. If you're going to operate in the high desert, <clears throat> don't come to the coastal plains of Georgia. I mean, that's uh, some of what you learn will be transferable. So much is not. So decide, first of all, kind of what you think you want to do and kind of where you want to do it. <clears throat> and then go to work for somebody in that ecosystem and in that industry that you want to emulate. <clears throat> so that, that that's fairly easy. The hard part is the capital. And, uh, and I don't have a quick answer for you on that. I do think that <clears throat> the best opportunity would be for young people who have the desire in the in the youth to find people who are older that have the land asset, maybe an existing operation, but but don't have another generation coming behind them and work out a deal. And I don't know what the deal needs to look like. I don't know what the deal needs to look like. That's going to be very subjective and you know to some extent to some extent somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. But generally, everybody can win. I mean, if, every, if everybody you know, goes about it fairly, and I've actually thought about it. I'm not going to do it because I've got too much else to do. But if I had plenty of time, uh, I would probably start an, an organization that helped put young farmer, wannabe farmers with existing landowners. And I think there's... I think there's opportunity out there to, for, for an organization like that. And, and some of y'all need to do it. I got plenty to do. So they do it to some extent, but it's called the Kuvira Coalition. And they have it to where you do these internships with people that have land. It's a great organization. They have a great agriculture podcast as well. Outside of that, I, there's nothing else that comes to my mind. There, I've been to their annual meetings in, in <laughs> uh, New Mexico twice, I think. And they, they are a good organization. And then the last thing too, you brought up a great point because I took a, it's just a standard online course with um, agriculture principles. There was about 20 of us and there were, I think five or six different instructors and it was twice a week. And the second day of that week, you would split off into groups based off of the, the geographic locations. And that was such a huge part because I'm in Texas and one of the ranchers, he is in Colorado. So it's very dry, very similar to here. And um, that just wanted to add on to that's such a great point of needing to figure out your geography because, as you're mentioning, it's way different compared to Montana from where you're at. Absolutely. Well, that's all I have, Will. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, to the audience, you could find him at White Oak Pastures online. And then I highly encourage you to A, watch every video that he's done on other podcasts, but B, buy his book, A Bold Return to Give a Damn. It's really, really good. 
And I think it'll get you really fired up and interested in all of this. So thank you again. Thank you for having me on today. I enjoyed it. You can find the full video on YouTube at Their Genesis.